welcome to Talk Immigration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talk Immigration is supported by the Immigration Research Group and the Department of Politics at the University of Sheffield. What role does colonialism play in contemporary asylum immigration politics? Do European asylum immigration policies reflect colonial power relations? Or is colonialism something that exists in the past whilst different logics govern contemporary immigration policies? And can this link between colonialism and asylum immigration even tell us something about Brexit? With me to discuss these questions are Lucy Mablin and Guminda Bamba. Lucy Mablin is a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Sheffield. In this episode, we will particularly be discussing her book, Asylum After Empire, Colonial Legacies in the Politics of Asylum Seeking. Guminda Bamra is Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies in the Department of International Relations at the University of Sussex. She's the author of numerous articles on postcolonialism, race and citizenship, including her 2007 book, Rethinking Modernity, Postcolonialism and the Sociological Imagination. I started by asking Lucy Mablin to explain why she thinks colonialism is important to understanding the politics of asylum. I suppose the book started from the position that um, when we look at the kinds of asylum policies Britain in particular has, but a lot of other countries, when we look at the kinds of policies, they obviously, or they seem implicitly to make assumptions about people's differential human worth, like some people's death and suffering appears um, uh, more mournable or of more concern or less concern. Um, And when I started this kind of project that became the book, I was interested in um, what does the British state think it's doing when it does the kinds of things it does to asylum seekers. Um, So we have a really exclusionary asylum regime. It's hard to get to Britain to apply for asylum if you apply for asylum. Um, it's difficult to get recognised as a refugee, you're likely to be um, detained, likely to be deported, these kinds of things. Um, but when you actually then look at the literature on the politics of asylum, or at that point at least, almost never was, it, it was almost, in most things, most writers felt that it was a problem that we had these kinds of policies, but it was almost automatically assumed that particular people would be more um, detainable, deportable, their lives would be seen to hold less value, without kind of saying, but why? Like, why? Like, that's kind of question, that underlying assumption. Um, So in the book, I kind of argue that we can only understand the kinds of policies that we have now which do assume a differential humanity um, amongst different groups of people that we can only understand that looking in a long colonial history and we, when we in fact look at the kind of uh, much longer history of the ways that Britain and other colonial powers have understood a category of the human and how that is articulated in human rights and the right to asylum, historically that has been very much along um, ideas, the lines of ideas of racial hierarchy which emerged from colonialism. And so I'm kind of arguing that that's not just something that has disappeared now because of the end of formal colonialism, that the kinds of ideas that dominated for hundreds and hundreds of years are still alive now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to add something, Gwinda? Um, 
Well, I guess in terms of thinking about the way in which the category of citizen and migrant also yeah. comes out of that very same sort of history and a refusal to recognise the fact that people who were considered citizens at the first time that the 1948 British Nationality Act created the legislative category of citizenship included everybody within empire. And then how over the sort of 1960s there was a gradual process of taking citizenship rights away from people effectively who were darker on the basis of a racial hierarchy that, that, that's also there. And I think that aspect of people not necessarily understanding that British Empire gave everybody the same rights and it wasn't possible to differentiate between people until that was done through a, a very specific legal process and how that ties in. Yeah. And one thing that um, comes out of this argument um, about the historical linkage is that um, you say, and I think rightly so, that every, a lot of people, both in the literature and just in the debate more generally, describe the current uh, migration and particular asylum seekers as new. Mm-hmm. That it's just now when they come from sort of, you know, over there that there's this resistance uh, against asylum seekers. But actually, you're arguing that if you're looking at the historical uh, linkages, then that is not the case at all. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I really heavily draw on the work of um, B.S. Chimney in that, in kind of drawing on this idea of the myth of difference. Um, and he wrote an article for the Journal of Refugee Studies in um, 1998, a really long time ago. It should have been quite transformational, I think, for the whole field of research, but wasn't actually at all. Um, and the basic argument is that the point at which we start to see these kinds of um, very exclusionary hostile asylum regimes emerging is the point at which um, there is uh, a shift in the kinds of people who are um, applying for asylum and they tend to be actually from formerly colonized countries they tend to be people of color when previously they were understood to be white and european kind of so being um, like the soviet union these kinds of things um, but when you actually uh, look at whether um, whether today's asylum seekers are particularly different from the reasons that they're fleeing, that is not, in fact, the case. They're not fundamentally different um, to people who were seeking asylum in the past. But also, at the same time, I think there's a strong narrative which maybe comes out of the UNHCR and the big kind of um, migration organisations like that, that everything today to do with migration is unprecedented. There's a narrative of constant kind of unprecedentedness. And it's only really possible to say that if you just ignore history. <laughs> and, um, and it's not the case at all. Um, but we're very good at forgetting the past and having a kind of amnesia around colonial pasts of often histories of migration as well. Um, and that probably links into some of your work, Gaminda, on... Um, Well, I was just going to say that if we broaden it out from asylum to migration, I mean, there was even a couple of books that came out quite recently which talked about how we had to understand the movements today in terms of the past. And when I saw that book, I was like, oh, that looks really great. But the past that this person was talking about was 1945 Mm -hmm. and that period. And so there's no understanding of the massive or the, the fact that Europeans moved in the 19th century in unprecedented numbers for the first time in global history, where you had 60 million 
Europeans leave the continent of Europe and travel mostly to the New World, but also to what we now call Australia, New Zealand, and so on, that that creates the basis from which all subsequent mass movements have occurred. And that's nowhere in the literature. So why does the fact that Europeans moved in such enormous numbers and moved and then went and colonised and settled the rest of the world not be part of the history of the way in which migration is thought about today. Mm. And there's so many small and big examples of amnesia in that, mm. like the International Organisation for Migration. I just discovered from Stefan Johnson and Peo Hansen's book, Your Africa, recently, that the International Organisation for Migration, the IOM, was founded to settle Europeans in Africa. Like, just literally, not to make mm. agreements, just to settle them in a space that was seen as empty because of the perception of overpopulation in Europe. And those, oh, wow. those kinds of histories of the whole way that international law, international organisations, patterns of migration are structured in and through colonialism, it's really difficult to take all of that on board and then say, but now everything's different and brand new because we don't have literal colonialism now kind of thing, um, which is so recent. So I suppose that's my like our general project of yes. <laughs> unforgetting. <laughs> yeah. But that's so interesting, I think, how certain histories of migration are just sort of disappearing from from descriptions of migration and with the sign because you you write about as well how Lucy, how um it's almost as if there were no refugees before um mm. the refugee convention. Um and and you describe how how the Refugee Convention came to be limited to uh, European... Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that or how, it, how... But there was actually resistance because it sometimes seems like that was just sort of the natural order of things. Of course, it was just going to be limited to... Because almost as if there were no other refugees. Yeah, so that's uh, like a contemporary retelling of the story, which is perpetuated relentlessly by academics yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, in the, in the kind of post-Second World War period when uh, the powers forming the United Nations were got together to um, decide on, an, on various conventions for human rights, one of them being for refugees. Um, there were lengthy discussions, of course there would be, about what would be the actual content of this document, um, who would have these rights, what would these rights be, and these kinds of things. And though people around the table weren't exclusively Europeans or white settler colonials, you know, it wasn't just like the US and European powers. Um, There were many recently uh, independent uh, states, like India was represented, for example. So because of the presence of those, of many, what might have been called third world states, at those actual discussions, that meant that when the colonial and settler colonial states who organise their empires and nation-states on the basis of racial inequality and and sometimes segregation, when they wanted to limit human rights just to white people, essentially, um, because otherwise they would immediately become human rights violators, um, they went to a lot of effort to limit that, to introduce territorial application clauses into... um, Uh, into the conventions and made all sorts of arguments about allowing people to self-determine 
through doing this. It would be fairer and kinder to let people who weren't ready to have human rights yet to uh, not give them human rights and all these kinds of arguments. But it's not like they were making those in a conversation with people who were just agreeing with them. They were really like the Pakistani representative at those negotiations was forcefully and powerfully, I mean, they're the kind of transcripts of those um, discussions are so powerful, just over and over again, making the argument that that this is implying or explicitly putting into international law racial discrimination and racial hierarchy. And it just kind of went back and forth, but in the end was fudged and uh, a clause was, was put in so that the colonial powers could extend it to anyone they wanted to. And then they didn't, of course. Britain applied it to like the Isle of Man and uh, the Channel Islands um, at that point. So then we end up with a situation where you can only be a refugee if you're from Europe and you've applied before 1950. You were displaced before 1951. But that's a process. That was an active decision. And it was not because there weren't millions and millions of refugees outside of Europe. And it's not because lots of countries outside of Europe weren't also hosting European refugees at that time and weren't very angry about the whole thing. But then if you look at the introduction to any textbook or book on refugee issues, you'll just hear there were these rights weren't for refugees at this point because there were no refugees and then later we all realised it should be expanded so it was when that's like most of that story isn't true at all. Yeah, no, I think that part of the book you really it's so fascinating to read the transcripts as well. And mm. I just read one of those accounts very recently in a new book um, about global migration, and it was almost as if you know, up until '67, when the rights were extended, there were no problems. Mm. Problems in the citation mark. Uh, so that's that's so, so yeah. So but I, I think it's like when you spot things like that, you just can't stop seeing them. And I think this thing that Gaminda um, has been arguing about citizens, like people who had British passports being turned into migrants in 1981, yeah. as soon as you see that, you just hear people everywhere talking about Windrush migrants. And the language is so important in that way because it allows us to completely forget the actual basis upon which... Um, like Windrush <laughs> citizens of empire were arriving in the metropole Don't you want to talk about yeah I thought we talk about that just broaden out in migration mm. in general and how we because Windrush is a good example isn't it because it's so yeah it was so framed around the issue of migration um, and I guess that is perhaps where you'd argue that the problem starts mm. in the first place and newness all these people suddenly arriving who are so different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way in which Windrush sort of tends to be talked about in terms of the arrival of the actual ship is that this is heralds the beginnings of multicultural Britain. You know, Mm. you have all these people coming and and so on. And yet the thing to remember also in that context is that you can't have an empire without an empire encompassing many cultures, ethnicities, races and so on. Mm. So the British Empire was always multicultural. The arrival of the empire Windrush didn't make Britain multicultural. And what it actually, the the thing that was new about the arrival of these citizens was that this was one of the first times that people from the darker parts of empire were moving freely through the empire because empire was built on the coerced movement 
of individuals from other parts uh, predominantly and so the newness was citizens from these other parts exercising their agency to travel to the metropole and even though we use the term Windrush as a shorthand one of the things that I think we need to be careful of is to remember that the movements of people were from the entire empire not just across the Atlantic but from uh, South Asia from Africa as well and, and so on and so now the scandal of Windrush, which is that people who came as citizens are having their citizenship uh, stripped and being deported because they can't demonstrate or prove their citizenship, even though the government has the documentation, because it would have the documentation, but it requires the individuals to prove it, which is a much more difficult uh, task. The people who are being deported are not just from the Caribbean, even though The Guardian did a fantastic uh, expose of all the people who've been deported. People have been deported to Nigeria, to Ghana, to India, to Bangladesh, to Sri Lanka, to Pakistan, and across the entire Commonwealth. This is a Commonwealth problem, not a, not a Caribbean problem. Mm. And I think that sort of gets lost in the discussions um, a little bit. But it's really importantly, like, racialized, isn't it? Mm. Because the, the 1981... Is it that 1981 yeah. one that basically it was written in that it wouldn't apply to um, white New Zealanders, Australians, Canadians, so it wouldn't end up in wrapping those people, and now we have this legacy so happening what now, which wouldn't. Is, um, the, so that they would still have the right to come to Britain. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. They were limited to... a patrial yeah. thing that if you could prove that you had an ancestor from Britain, then you could still apply somehow... Although I think that gets changed in 2013 as well, so it becomes much more restrictive mm, more recently. But the thing to remember is like when the go-home... So I just noticed you've got the book there. You know, when yeah. the go-home controversy happens, the majority of visa overstayers in London were Australians and New Zealanders. Mm. And yet where the bans were being sent were to the areas of settled ethnic minority uh, populations who were British citizens. And so it's like, well, why is this ban circulating in these areas and not the areas where Australian and New Zealand visa overstayers are, mm. are residing? So there's an, you know, there's an utter racialized hierarchy that's at play here, both historically and in terms of contemporary politics. So just to clarify, was it the case that in age one, basically you could still have freedom of movement if you could prove that you had some sort of white ancestry? Um, if you could prove a historical link to Britain like through you, lineage, like a grand, you had a grandparent who was from this island, country, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was a way for them to essentially racialize, yeah, the law, yeah. No, I didn't know that. That's really, yeah, terrible. And the history of British immigration policy is like walking some <laughs> line between being explicitly racist and trying to find ways to deny this people. Is the thing, in 1948, when citizenship was first legislated for, like I was saying, it was given to everybody within empire, and not just everybody who was within the current empire, but also you had a category of Commonwealth citizenship, which was given to everybody who was now in an independent country that had previously been a colony. So it was a citizen, and that gave you the same rights to come to Britain, to live here, to work here, and to have access to benefits and, and so on. And so there was no distinction made between the two categories of citizenship. So in 1948, Britain gave citizenship to over 800 million people. Mm. And then when some of them, particularly from the darker parts of empire, started coming to Britain, it was like, oh, well, I know we gave you citizenship, but we didn't actually mean you to come. Like, we don't <laughs> want you to come. 
But then they couldn't do anything to stop them because they Or at had, least they wanted some to right. didn't they, to rebuild the country and then... They, I mean, I think that's partly a myth as well because the majority, there was something called the European Volunteer Workers Scheme whereby Britain sought to, for the rebuilding of Britain, it sought to get people from Italy, Germany and the Baltic states who'd been in prisoner of war camps and so on to enable them to come over. And even then it was explicitly racialized in relation to Europe because they, they didn't want Jewish people to come. Mm. So there was, within the British legislation, there was an explicit clause that they wanted people from the Baltic states and I quote, because they were of good stock and could breed with the native populations, but they didn't want Jewish people mm. for the same opposite reason. Mm. And wow. so, you know, it, it wasn't that they called for people from darker parts of empire. They came because they now had the rights to come. Mm. And so in that sense, and then when they came, and then they realised that they couldn't actually undo the legislation to stop them coming because Britain at this point is still an empire, it still has colonies and if you start unpicking the legislation you cause all sorts of problems. So then what they did was establish the Commonwealth Immigration Acts during the 1960s and 70s to limit the rights of people to enter Britain but while still being citizens. Mm. So that's the creation of an explicit two-tier citizenship system mm. that we see continuing to play out now in different sorts of ways with the government's refusal to allow Shamima Begum to come back to Britain and how can you strip citizenship away from one of your own citizens they're claiming that they can do that because she could get Bangladeshi citizenship even though Bangladesh have said that they'll execute her if she enters Bangladesh so on what basis can she get Bangladeshi citizenship she can't, and yet the mm. British government are still stripping citizenship away from her. They couldn't do that from a white British person, because where would that person be expected mm. to get mm. another citizenship? So in that sense, that citizenship that was initially given to everybody, and then through the immigration laws, was racialised into a two-tier system of citizenship, now means that Lucy and I could do exactly the same thing for which she might be arrested and I would be deported, mm. whilst we're both technically citizens. Mm. So that doesn't then make us equal, even though yeah. we're supposed to be. Yeah. Um, I thought we'd finish to talk a bit about all this and how it relates to Brexit, even, <laughs> even, though, <laughs> even though people might be fed up with that. Um, we but, mustn't but, get fed up with it. <laughs> we mustn't get fed up with it because the fatigue is dangerous. I heard something, I think it might have been a joke, but that Sky News started some like Brexit-free... I'll say it wasn't a joke then, yeah, okay. No. Yeah, but this is true. still not a Brexit-free podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like, so how... Because obviously migration was a big part um, and sovereignty a big part of Brexit. And, and how would you say that all this that we've talked about links... Um, I don't know who wants to go first... I mean, I can just say that, you know, so briefly for me, it's the mythology of the idea of Britain as a nation. Britain's never been a nation. It's always been an empire. And given that it's always been an empire, the population currently in Britain looks the way it does because of that imperial history. If you then suggest, oh, well, we've been a nation and we want to reclaim national sovereignty, you're going to imagine a past that's different from what it was and use that imagined past to try and get rid of people in the present. Because even though Brexit is technically about Britain's relationship with the European Union, 
nothing about the debates in the lead up to it were at all about the democratic deficit of the European Parliament or about sort of, you know, it was entirely about our borders, our sovereignty. And the people that they wanted out were the people who didn't look like them, who were not white, so darker British citizens were as much being told to leave as technically European, you know, so even Mm. though the legislation is going to affect uh, non-UK EU citizens living within Britain, the rhetoric on the street includes British citizens within it in terms of who should leave, because they think that partly there was a expansion of the the term leave, that it wasn't just about Britain leaving Europe, but it was also about people they didn't like Mm. leaving Mm. Britain. And that's the bit that I think is uh, yeah. yeah ties into I think this. that's true. And like I see it as two groups of people got wrapped up in Brexit, who it should have had nothing to do with. And you can only understand that in the kind of long history of of colonialism. And one is British citizens of colour who are, you know, here live here. It's completely irrelevant. Their presence or non presence is Brexit is irrelevant to. But you know, the day after the referendum. I was at Sheffield train station and an elderly black British guy was being attacked by two young people screaming, go home, get out of our country at him. And, um, and that's the way that gets wrapped up. Yeah, I know it was uh, disturbing. But then, but the second thing is people who aren't even then present. So, you know, the breaking point um, Mm. poster of uh, Syrian refugees at the Hungarian border, the idea of an invading brown horde becomes also then um, symbolic of a European threat because your your doors are open, so that means our doors are open to this brown horde of, of people walking along the road. And even though, you know, we have extremely tight, we've opted out of most things on asylum, it's basically... Uh, not going to have a massive impact on asylum in Britain, uh, Brexit, it shouldn't have anything to do with it. That gets wrapped up. That's because of those kind of racialized ideas. And then, yeah, British citizens of colour get wrapped up in it who are expected to go home to where it's not clear. But it's the imaginary of Britain as not just a nation, but as a white nation. And it's only possible if you imagine Britain to exist as, an, as a coherent nation and you imagine it to be a white nation, for those two kind of dog whistles mm. to resonate with you um, in the Vote Leave campaign. Yeah, because what's one thing that I've heard you said, Guminder, on um, a different podcast <laughs> is that after Brexit, that all of a sudden everyone had a citizenship somewhere else, so people were Irish mm. or German yeah. or whatever... Um, and then this is all of a sudden everyone sort of a migrant, but that's not. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, so what I was saying was that you know speaking to so many of my friends who I just thought were white English, you know there'd be never any sense that they were anything other than white English, and they were all telling me about how they were getting these other passports. You know, one was getting a Swedish passport, one was getting a German passport, loads were getting Irish passports, French, Italian, and so on. And it was just like, how are you getting these passports? Yeah. And they were like, oh, well, you know, because my mother's Swedish or my grandparents were German or my grandparents were Irish and, and so on. And it's like, oh, so you actually are a child of a migrant then or a grandchild of a migrant. And they were like, no, I'm English. I was like, no, but actually the only way you can get another passport 
as if you're the child or grandchild of a migrant. Have you ever been called a child of a migrant or a second generation immigrant? For us, they are really funny. Yeah. And they're like, no, 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 I'm English. And I was like, that's funny because like, I have a British passport. My parents have a British passport. My grandfather had a British passport. Every member of my family that's ever had passports has had a British passport. And yet we continue to be called migrants. Mm. And so it's not about where you're from. It's what you look like mm. that matters. And I think to go, kind of go back to the beginning, all of that only makes sense if most British people have no sense of their own history, yeah. of, the, of like the actual history of the country. You can only kind of say any of these things with a straight face or genuinely believe in Britain as a white nation, etc., etc., if you don't know your own history. And we don't learn our own history in school, in fact which makes the entire thing then possible. You can find links to Lucy Mabelin's and Gumina Dunbar's work in the episode description, including a link to Mabelin's book, Asylum After Empire. You can also follow Talk Immigration on Twitter, at TalkinMig, but that was all for this time. Thank you for listening.